Well, thank you for your wonderful singing this morning. It was uh, great to have lots of instrumentation. There was a fullness, and I normally have to stand up here, and I hear a lot of my own voice, and so <laughs> it was nice to hear uh, a lot of instruments over there, and you guys sang well, so thank you for that. Titus chapter 2 this morning, I feel still stay open to that, Titus 2. Have you ever created an accidental experiment? There have been many beautiful scientific discoveries uh, that have brought about remarkable advances, and they all happen by accident. Uh, Radiation, microwaves, those things are discovered uh, by accident. Uh, And I've had lots of accidental experiments as well. They've yielded remarkable results, but not in the same way. Uh, A few months ago, I was craving food from one of my favorite restaurants uh, back in South Carolina. They, they cook Cuban and Latin cuisine, and I figured it wouldn't be too difficult to replicate some of uh, their dishes. And so I uh, marinated my chicken, and I cut it up, and I cut up my uh, cucumber and, and onions and tomato, and I, I grilled everything, and it was wonderful. I made my rice, put it all together, and I tasted it, and it was good, but it wasn't the same. And I was like... I, I understand why it's not the same. I forgot about the sauce. They're, they make this incredible sauce. It's like everything it touches turns to gold. And so I take my uh, cilantro and jalapenos and garlic, and I put them in a blender, and I, I blend it all up, and I pour it on, on the bowl of food, and it tastes awesome. I clean up all my dishes. I pour the leftover sauce into a squeeze bottle, and I put the squeeze bottle in the bottom shelf of the door of the refrigerator, and that is when the science experiment began. (laughs) Because it sat there, and it sat there, (laughs) and it sat there until just a few weeks ago. Yes, it was a squeeze bottle just like that. And by the time I found it just a few weeks ago, I picked it up, and it was bloated like a balloon. (laughs) And I held it out like this, examining it. The top half is filled with uh, some oil, and the bottom half is filled with radioactive waste, <laughs> and I very carefully remove the top so it doesn't blast my eye out, and I, and I dispose of it very carefully. Um, and what I found out as I had that accidental scientific experiment uh, was that if you become complacent or forgetful about something, uh, especially if it's in your fridge, things will separate that ought not separate. <laughs> Uh, And human beings, we have this tendency to compartmentalize our lives. Uh, Christians, we're we're not immune from that tendency either. Uh, Often, compartmentalizing portions of our lives and and separating them off, it's a necessary thing to be able to function. But we're prone to separate areas that shouldn't actually be separated. And and I believe that the greatest temptation in this area, it revolves around uh, two ideas of theology and doctrine, and life. Right? We're, we're prone to separate doctrine, what is true and good and right, and separate that from life. We, we build up our understanding of God, who he is, all he's done, all he will do, and we, we build it all up into this beautiful thing, and we set it on the shelf right here, and then we go about our lives day to day, how to live life, and we have that understanding, and we put it neatly on the shelf over here. And we separate doctrine from life. And what we're going to find here in Titus 2 this morning is that when you separate doctrine and life, it's one of the most damaging things that you can do in your walk with God. So this morning, as Paul is uh, attempting to explain to Titus and also to us uh, how this virtuous Christian life grows, he's going to say it grows out of your understanding of doctrine. 
Doctrine and life cannot be separated. Well, how do I know this? It's because of the first word in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, now just jump back into the flow of Paul's thought. Titus, older men, they can be what they need to be. Older women can be what they need to be. Younger women can be what God has called them to be. Young men, the same way. Servants and employees, they can live a life that exalts the gospel for because God's grace has appeared. And as Paul is talking about this appearance of God's grace, he also very quickly begins talking about doctrine. And this is the the big point that we're getting at. Because the grace that fuels growth in the Christian life, because that grace is discovered in doctrine, you must devote your mind to understanding doctrine. It's it's very simple, and we're going to deal with it in two main points this morning. The first portion deals with this statement here in verse 11, and then the second, it's a much shorter section, is just verse 15. Let's begin with these verses, verses 11 to 14. Grace must be understood through doctrine in order to empower Christian living. You must understand grace through doctrine in order to have power for Christian life. He discusses grace and doctrine hand in hand because they cannot be separated. And the first doctrine that he discusses, it revolves around this one that you see in verse 11. It's of the doctrines of salvation, or some might say soteriology. And we have this implicit command here in verse 11 and 12 to unearth God's grace in the realm of soteriology. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. God's grace has appeared to all mankind. Now, in in this passage here in Titus, Paul isn't, isn't overly specific about what he has in mind, about what this grace is specifically, but he uses very similar wording in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, he helps us understand what he means in chapter 1, verse 9. Jesus, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now his grace has been revealed by the appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality in light through the gospel. Jesus Christ is this chief bringer of grace, and that, that grace is so super abundant that Paul says in Titus 2.11, the grace of God that brings salvation, it has appeared. This is a salvation offering grace. Salvation uh, to, to anyone without distinction, any ethnicity, any economic status, any person can be reconciled to God. That, that relationship between God and man, it can be restored because of Jesus' work on the cross. That is amazing grace, that you had this insurmountable debt hanging over your head, a debt that you accrued by your own sin, and that debt made you a slave to sin. And in his graciousness, Jesus worked on your behalf, offering you hope and freedom and life, and he bought you out from underneath the weight of your debt. And you, if you're a Christian, you are Christ's possession. He owns you. And he's a lovely master, a master who welcomes you into his presence rather than condemning you to an eternity apart from him. That's just an an ever so brief glimpse of this doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And we see in verse 12, immediately, that God's grace, which can be discovered through doctrine, particularly the doctrine of salvation, it instructs us to do something about life. 
doctrine, bringing grace for life. And it instructs us to do two things. I'll put them in, in these categories, mortification and vivification. I'll explain what I mean. Titus 2, verse 12, God's grace is teaching us that as we are denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God's grace in your life is instructing you to, to mortify or to kill aspects of the old life now that you are united with Christ. You are to deny ungodliness. These are all those areas of your life that are shaking their fist at Almighty God saying, no, I don't want your reign in this area. All of those items must be dead and buried. Deny that ungodliness. Your worldly desires, worldly lusts, all this mindset that resembles the thinking of the world around you, that sometimes in ignorance, sometimes in outright defiance, uh, hates God, all of that, that mindset has to be destroyed. You are to mortify, to kill off that old life. But more than that, you're to vivify, to foster growth in other areas of your heart and life. This sensibility, righteousness, godliness. Your life should be filled with this wisdom. That's what that word soberly is getting at. This, This life of wisdom and common sense. And then this, this righteousness. Others should, should look at you, and they should see that your life is, is upright. It's ethical. It's blameless. Living in accordance with who you say you are in Christ. And you should seek to reflect the nature of God. That's, that's what godliness is. It's just reflecting the nature of God. In fifth grade, I was in a math class with two of my, my buddies. And the three of us, we were trouble waiting to happen. Uh, and so our teacher wisely after the first two weeks of school, that didn't allow us to sit together any longer. And I was placed in the back left-hand corner of the room. One, one friend was right in the middle, and the other guy was all the way in the front right corner next to the window. His name was Creed. And Creed has a brilliant mind. It is geared for math. It is built for math. And, well, he didn't need his calculator for the things that we were allowed to use our calculator for. So he decided to use his calculator as a toy And he used his calculator and his strategic position right by the window to bounce the sun all the way across the room and to blind me for half of the math class every single day. (laughs) Your lifestyle should be be like that calculator, taking the, the blazing holiness, the radiance of God's perfection, and reflecting it to this world. That's what it means to live a godly life, to reflect the attributes and the character of God to the world. But we still haven't answered the main question. I've left us kind of with two loose ends, one of doctrine and one of life transformation. How does studying this kind of doctrine, how does that lead to grace that empowers change in your Christian life? Well, as you devote your mind to studying these these various aspects of soteriology, the doctrines of salvation, you should find it's like repeatedly dipping a thimble into the ocean. You, You constantly find this overflow of grace to empower your life. And as you're thinking through these doctrines, this is what this inner dialogue should sound like. Lord, I I thank you for redemption. Lord, you you purchased my soul from the clutches of hell. You own me. I am your possession. You have been such a kind master, and I want to reflect your kindness, your gentleness to others. This entire world hates you, but because you bought me out of my misery, 
I want to overflow with a love for you. Or, Father, I thank you for adoption, that I have all the rights, all the privileges of a son in your family. I don't deserve it, but because I am your child, you've given me this inheritance that I have through my union with Christ. Lord, how could I ever, how could I ever think to use my wealth here on earth for my will? How could I ever think to hoard it when the only true wealth that lasts is the inheritance that you've stored up for me? Lord, because of adoption, because of my inheritance in Christ, help me to serve you with my life and my wealth now. That kind of study of doctrine, that reflection on what God has done for you through salvation, that is what helps you drill down into this inexhaustible wealth of grace that can empower perpetual change in your life. Paul says, you need to unearth grace by studying soteriology, by studying the doctrines of salvation. But in verses 13 and 14, he moves on to an area called eschatology. He wants us to unearth grace in eschatology, the study of the end times, the last things. It involves everything that's going to happen from the rapture through the tribulation, the millennial kingdom, the final battle, the judgment of every person who's ever lived, and then into eternity. Look at verse 13. Paul says, we are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul writes about the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he's doing two things. One, he's very explicitly saying that Jesus is God. This is one of the the greatest proof texts for that. It's one of the most clear examples that we have. Jesus is our great God. But more than that, what he is specifically referring to about this appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is he's referring to this judgment that will come at the end of time after Jesus' second coming. And let me just very briefly describe what that judgment looks like. A holy God, a just God who has been mercifully delaying his wrath, he will one day rend the heavens in two, pour out his wrath that has been building for thousands of years as billions of people have been sinning against him. And he will devastate the earth with calamity after calamity after calamity until there is no sin or brokenness that is burnt into the fabric of life itself. That is what Paul is referring to. Now, if you have a question as to how on earth does that devastation of earth bring grace? Well, you're asking the right question. (laughs) Because if you study eschatology, the end times, in isolation, it isn't a glorious and hopeful doctrine. It's a terrifying doctrine. But that's why Paul immediately goes ahead and connects eschatology with soteriology. Because the only reason there's any grace to be found in studying the end times and the devastation of the world is because salvation is possible. And that's why Paul describes the end times in dazzling terms. It is this blessed hope. We can look forward to the return of Christ. All of his own will rejoice when Christ appears and returns for the final time. All of our time on earth can be spent looking forward, just waiting for Christ to appear in his full, radiant, and splendorous glory. But this posture of waiting or or looking It's not meant to communicate apathy. It's not sitting in our recliner with your your hands behind your head looking back. It's communicating that every choice that you make in this life 
It's to be shaped by the reality of what is coming ahead, that Christ will return. Christ's return is described as being imminent. doesn't mean it will happen soon. It means it could happen at any time. Now, the best way I can describe this is back when the power went out in February, consumers said that the power would be back on imminently. Did not mean soon. <laughs> that meant what they were trying to communicate to you was don't go to Walmart and buy out all the candles that they have for light and don't go to the, the gas station and get 250 gallons of gas for your generator because if you did that, you would be denying the reality that the power would come back on. Likewise, this reality that Jesus will return, that it could happen at any moment, means you shouldn't allow yourself to invest only in this life. If you're investing in this life alone, you are not investing wisely. It is denying the return of your great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're doing that, Paul would say, you haven't dug deeply enough and found the grace that can be discovered in eschatology. And just look at the security that Paul describes a Christian can have in verse 14 during that time. When Christ returns and pours out his wrath, this is what's in store for the Christian. Because of what Christ did, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. He would purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Jesus Christ God himself, he gave his life for you in order to buy you from these lawless actions, lawless deeds, sin, to purify your life, transform you into a member of a pure community, burning with passion to obey him as your savior. You were bought with the monumental price of Jesus Christ's blood so that you would sin no longer but live a life transformed by his grace, passionate to obey and glorify your savior who so graciously purchased you. I mean, do, do you see, see it here again, this, how understanding doctrine and devoting your mind to it brings this grace that enables the transformation that God commands? And let me let you in again on this inner monologue that should be happening in your brain. Lord, I thank you that because Jesus Christ purchased my soul, I don't have to fear what tomorrow brings. Father, you could pour out your wrath on humanity right now, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for me, I don't have to fear. Because you look at me and you see nothing that deserves to be met with wrath because you see your son's righteousness. Or, Lord, I praise you that when I close my eyes and I die here on earth, but I open them again in the new heaven and the new earth, as I walk down that golden street of New Jerusalem, I don't have to be concerned about any reward that you have promised me. But my greatest joy be that when I walk into your throne room and I see you face to face in your full glory and I get to fall at your feet and praise you for saving a miserable, wretched sinner like me. That kind of study of eschatology that shapes your entire perspective on how to live your life here and now, to serve your life, to spend and be spent for the kingdom, that is how doctrine connects you to this grace for transformation. Now, up to this point, we've examined two doctrines. First is soteriology, doctrines of salvation. Second is eschatology, the, the last things. And we've looked at the type of transformation that that should bring as you understand the grace that is found in those doctrines. But up to this point, we haven't answered the most crucial question. 
How do I actually go about devoting my mind to studying doctrine? How do I study doctrine and connect myself to this unlimited stream of grace? So let me answer that in in three parts. How do I devote my mind to discovering grace in doctrine? And the first one should go without saying, but I'm going to say it, be in the word. I should be able to assume that you know this, that it has to be the starting point, but I need to say it anyways. Paul describes this process of, of life transformation in 2 Corinthians 3. He ties your sanctification, your growth in the Christian life to the word of God. That as you look in the word, as you see God's glory revealed, you are transformed over time to live a a Christ-like life. Scripture is God's primary means of giving us doctrine and theology, truths about himself and his plans. And if you're not regularly in the word, it shouldn't surprise you that you can't seem to overcome that, that sin struggle that's left in your life. You have to be in the world word daily. Uh, you don't need to start this 10-chapter-a-day reading plan tomorrow. I, I truly don't think anyone can effectively absorb 10 chapters a day. If you can, please tell me how, because I, I love that. Uh, start with even just a paragraph, though, that you think about and meditate on for the rest of the day. God, this is who you are. This is who you've called me to be. In light of who you are and what you've done for me, I want to grow. I'd even recommend uh, getting something uh, like this, a devotional. It helps you read a passage, and and then it connects you to a pastor or a theologian who comes alongside of you and helps you uh, have bite-sized pieces of theology that you can absorb for the rest of the day. Uh, These are ones I've been giving away. One is called Daily Strength. I've given several of these away. And then Gospel Meditations. This one's for young adults. Someone please come pick these up after the service. That'd be sad if I have to have them on my bookshelf for much longer because they're just collecting dust and they're of no use to anyone there. Um, be in the word. Paul says, devote your mind to discovering grace through doctrine. Well, you have to do it by being in the word, but also by being in church. And again, this one should go without saying, but since we're here, I'm going to say it. Each Sunday, you have the opportunity to have doctrine explained to you in a way that you can hopefully understand. Sunday morning worship should be this this bare minimum standard that you set for yourself, but there are many other opportunities to take in doctrine. You heard them announced. We have small group studies on Wednesdays in the afternoon. A uh, pastor has been leading a group of us through First Peter. It's been a rich study. The, the young adults have been meeting at my house in the evenings, going through Ecclesiastes. How do we live in this broken world with wisdom? And then we also have Sunday school. And let me be honest with you, it breaks my heart when Sunday school is poorly attended because Sunday school is this offering of bite-sized pieces of truth, and this is the best part. If you get lost, you can say, Whoosh. I, I have a question. I'm glad you can't do that this morning, right now, because I would be totally off the rails if you would pause me to ask a question. But Sunday school is that opportunity. Say, I have this question about how God is working in this passage. Help me find the answer. 9.45 really isn't that early. You you can do it. If you can be at work at 8 on Monday morning because you prepped, you can do it on Sunday. I I really think you can. Then lastly, be in the Word, be in church, but also have conversations with doctrine or about doctrine. This takes many different forms, hence the the, the vague wording. Uh, For some of you, it will take the form of a book. And as you you read an author's thoughts and he he lets you in on what he's thinking and takes you on this journey of discovering God's grace through doctrine, it's wonderful. You're pleasing God as you try to devote your mind to understanding doctrine. 
My favorite doctrinal conversations to listen into, those come on uh, Tuesdays in the form of a podcast. It's called the Thinklings Podcast. It's a group of three friends. I, I know several of them, and they work together at a Bible college, and they meet together, and they talk about what God is doing in their life, books that they're reading, how they're learning through those, and then one of them gives a challenge. So I love Tuesdays because I go home and I cook a meal and I listen to three guys talk about God and help me grow in my love for the Lord. There's many different ways that you can devote your mind to doctrine and dive deeper into this wellspring of God's grace. So this is how Paul starts out. He says, gospel grace must be studied in, in, in the form of doctrine in order to empower Christian living. But secondly, significantly shorter as well, gospel grace must be proclaimed as doctrine. Gospel grace needs to be proclaimed as doctrine in order to empower Christian living. Just look at verse 15 with me. Paul says to Titus, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. This is what Paul is saying to, to Titus, his, his young protege on the, the island of Crete. He says, Titus, as a pastor, you need to continue to speak this doctrine to people. There are many people, they're growing tired as they press on in this marathon of Christian life. They're beginning to stumble. Titus, come alongside of them, put your arm around them, and help them get up. Press forward. If they need to limp across that finish line, fine. Limp, but keep moving forward. Speak this doctrine. Give them the grace that they need to pursue after Christ all the way to the finish line. But Titus, there are others. They've stopped dead in their tracks. They're considering turning around. Sharply rebuke these people. Use the truth of God's word. Show them their error uh, and the dangers of turning around now and correct them so that they continue to move forward to the glory of Jesus. And then Titus, don't let anyone disregard your ministry of grace. Don't let anyone despise your ministry of grace as you give them doctrine. There are some people, they've plugged their ears and they're going, la, 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 I don't want to hear it. But Titus, don't let them ignore you. So Paul commanding Titus, this, this young pastor on the island of Crete, to do these things. Now this is the, the difficult thing for me is that I understand how to do several of those things, but there's one I don't know how to do. Speak these things, exhort these things. I love that command. Because if someone asks me any day of the week besides Sunday, what do you think about this? And they ask for my opinion, I go, well... This is what I would do if I were in your shoes, or take this with a grain of salt, because this is just my opinion. And so I love these first two commands, speak these things and exhort. Because Paul is saying to Titus, you get up on Sunday morning and you give it to him. You tell him what God said. Not your opinion, you tell him what God said. I love doing that. That, that emboldens me every Sunday. This is what God has said. This isn't my opinion. This is what God has said himself through his word. Speak these things, exhort. I love those commands. Rebuke, I don't love doing that, but I know how to do that. But that last one, let no one despise you. How can you force someone to listen to truth and be transformed by God's grace? 
When a person has begun to turn from God, to harden their heart, chased after the pleasures of this world, how am I supposed to make sure no one disregards the truth of God and stops being transformed by grace? I'll be honest with you, I don't have the full answer to that. I don't think anybody has the full answer to that. Uh, And you might think, well, that's okay. I don't need the full answer to that because I'm not a pastor. (laughs) True, but God's call for you as a husband to disciple your wife or as a parent to disciple your children or as a, a wise woman to disciple the younger women, that's not the same call as pastoring, but pastoring and discipleship aren't that far apart. You do need to know how to not let someone write you off as this and disregard you as an obnoxious Bible thumper who's irrelevant. We need to understand how we don't let anyone despise us in our ministry of communicating grace through doctrine. So again, I don't have the full answer, but I know it at least involves this. It involves living a self-controlled life, enduring hardships, not gossiping, living a life of moderation, being sexually pure, living an exemplary life, blameless in conduct, having a heart that is passionate to obey Christ. I know this command to not be disregarded or be despised, I know it at least involves that. And the reason I know that is because I've just taken the character qualities from verses 1 all the way to 14, and I plugged them in here. Because if you and I are not being transformed by God's grace, others are right to disregard us. People are watching and they are copying and if they see that you aren't transformed, they don't want to be transformed either. I was at a sportsman's banquet uh, many years ago. I was in middle school and you'll understand why I find this uh, story so interesting. And uh, there was a sportsman and he was, he was the main speaker of this this sportsman's banquet. He's a very experienced and and famous hunter, and he was telling a story about taking one of his buddies hunting with him. This buddy had never been hunting before, and they were hunting for for deer. And so this experienced sportsman, he decides, I'm going to play a practical joke on this guy who has no idea what's going on. So he got two spray bottles of dough urine, and he dumped one out and filled it up with vanilla extract, and that was his bottle. And he gave his friend the actual stuff. And as he's walking through the woods, he's spraying it on his jacket and on his hands. He's rubbing it in. He's it on his face. And his friend is watching and copying on his jacket, on his hands, on his face. Then the experienced huntsman gets to the make or break moment. And he holds it up and he opens his mouth. (laughs) And he sprays. There was a long, intense moment of deliberation for this inexperienced hunter and this awful face that he makes, and he lifts up his hand, and he opens his mouth, and mercifully, the experienced hunter says, no, no please, please don't, please don't. I was playing a joke on you. Uh, I have vanilla extract. You, you don't want to do that. <laughs> it's a horrifying mistake. Do not make that mistake. But this is, this is what you see in this illustration. People are watching, and they're copying your life. And if it appears that you're spraying this love for the world all around you, everywhere you go, I love the world, I love the world, spraying it all around you, then it shouldn't surprise you when your friend that you're trying to disciple doesn't want to stop loving the world either. 
That's the first reason that you and I need to be transformed by grace so that no one has a right to disregard us as we're seeking to disciple them and give them grace through doctrine. But there's a second reason as well. Why is it that grace needs to transform me? Well, the transforming power of grace as you're growing in your Christian walk, it's supposed to assure you that your faith is genuine and not counterfeit. So this obedient lifestyle of grace in a, in a spirit-filled believer, it should bring this assurance of salvation to your heart and to your mind. Chapel, chapter 1, it shows this group in the church. Paul points them out, and he says, these people claim to be transformed by God's grace. They have a relationship with them, they say, but their lives say otherwise. Look at chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. And verse 16 is what we really need here. They profess to know God, but in works, they deny him. They are abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Now, this is what Paul is saying. Titus, there's this group of people, and they're in your church. They've made their way in, and they claim to have a relationship with Jesus. They're in Sunday school, and the invitation goes, as, as, if you're here and that you believe that you're, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, would you just slip up your hand just briefly? They, their, their hands are way up there. They say, I am, I am a disciple of Jesus. If anyone asks, they're all in. They're very quick to answer. But their entire life is screaming otherwise. Titus, I don't want anyone from your church in Crete, I don't want any of them to be in that type of group. They are abominable. They are detestable in the sight of God. Titus, I want the people in your ministry to be totally transformed by God's grace. I want the men the young men and the old men, I want them to be transformed by grace, living these exemplary lives filled with fruits of the Spirit that God desires. I want the, the ladies, young and old, I want them to be transformed by grace. Even these, these servants and these employees who go to work and they are ground down by everyday life, I want them to adorn the gospel and be transformed by grace in front of their masters. Titus, don't let your church be filled with those who profess faith. Let it be filled with those who live out their faith. And God's word is telling us this morning that if you claim to have a relationship with him, but there's no grace-empowered transformation happening in your life, then in God's eyes, you are abominable, disobedient, and disqualified. That's not a category I want to be in. It's not a category I want you to be in. Your grace-empowered transformation as you study doctrine and understand who God is and as you stand in awe of his beauty, it should work a dramatic change in your life and serve as a witness of genuine faith. But perpetual disobedience to God, it testifies of counterfeit faith. Paul says there is an infinite amount of grace in God's storehouses as we go to the word as we study it there, as we study it and, and hear it in church as it's proclaimed, and as we have conversations about it, as we read about it, 
Discover the beauty and the glory of God. Look into his face and be transformed by his grace. Devote your mind to understanding doctrine and continue to seek this grace for life transformation. Let me close with just the saying of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's an old Welsh minister. If you've never read any of his works, you should. Uh, They're wonderful. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, it's no use what you say. We're interested in doctrine. We're not interested in doctrine. We're concerned about life. No, if your doctrine is wrong, your life will be wrong. You cannot separate what a man believes from what he is. Doctrine and life cannot be kept separate. So study doctrine. Find this fuel that you need to pursue grace-empowered transformation in every area of your life. Would you stand with me this morning as we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it has truths that we can share with boldness. Lord, we don't have to to stammer and stutter as we try to give our own opinion that I can stand up this morning and I can say this is what God has said and this is how he wants us to live our lives. Lord, thank you for that assurance of what your will is. I ask that you would help us to grow our minds, to not be concerned or or unwilling to challenge ourselves to tackle some, some deep areas of doctrine. Lord, that it wouldn't just be for academic growth, that it would expand our view of you and, and broaden our hearts, that we would stand in awe of who you are. Lord, we thank you for the doctrine of salvation, for all that you've done for us, reconciling us to yourself, that Jesus bore the full penalty for the sin that I deserved. So now I can stand in his righteousness as a member of your family. Lord, thank you for the, the doctrine of the last times, that one day, all those who are in Christ, they will stand in your presence and with everything that has life and breath, we will praise your name for all eternity. Lord, thank you for those beautiful doctrines. Would they help us to find the grace that we need to continue to push forward and grow in our walk with you? We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.